I've been away from you a long time. I never thought I'd miss you so. Somehow I feel your love is real. Near you I want to be. The birds are singing, it is song time. The banjo's drumming soft and low. I know that you yearn for me too. Swanee, you're calling me. Swanee. Well, hello. Welcome to the uh, American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be looking at the final bit of Sinclair Lewis's Main Street. Um, so this is uh, a book really dealing with, uh, really presenting, I guess, uh, Lewis's thesis on, on the nature of America and its banality, its consumerism, its inability to change. It's kind of, I, I kept talking about Tocqueville here. Tocqueville talked about how American culture sort of will regress to a mean because of its democratic nature. And I think Sinclair does a really good, Sinclair Lewis does a really good job of exploring that in this, this book. So as we picked up in the last episode, or as we uh, finished up in the last episode, we saw really the breakdown of Carol and Will Kennicott's relationship. Will Kennicott's have, clearly having an affair, um, and Carol's becoming increasingly uh, an anxious and disillusioned with her life in Gopher's Prairie. So, um, so we'll just see how the story ends uh, by looking at the last few chapters. So, um, yeah, chapter, uh, we're going to look at chapter 30 to, I guess, 39, um, which is to the end of the book. So, um, now, as we saw, Will Kennicott was having a, an affair. It's very subtly written, but it's, it's pretty clear that's what's going on. There's, there's lines that, that Will gives in this part of the book that makes it clear that he was, but she doesn't really want to hear about it. Carol, uh, Carol doesn't really want to hear about it, but Carol's having her own sort of, uh, uh, affair of a type where she's engaged she, she was kind of flirting with guys and she realized other men found her attractive and she found interest in other men you know and that's no big deal but it's not until she really meets this uh, what's his name Eric well it's Eric Eric is what I'll call him <clears throat> his last name slipped in my mind but anyways, they've been hanging out a lot together, and she really sees in him a lot of intellectual companionship. Uh, she also has a desire to sort of educate him. She sees him as a younger person that she can sort of be a, almost a motherly figure to, but she also has some attraction to him, just in his, mostly his personality, it seems, that drives him. He's also kind of an outcast in Gopher's Prairie, where everyone sort of makes fun of him and, and talks about him behind his back. They call him Air Elizabeth because of his uh, more feminine nature. Um, so anyways, as chapter 30 opens, we find, um, well, Eric and Carol are sort of hanging out together. And during this chapter, Eric de essentially declares, uh, his love for Carol in a pretty, pretty direct fashion. Now she really can't accept this love, it seems to me, but she's able to appreciate it. Uh, and she still is very tempted by Eric because Eric seems to offer her an escape from Gopher's Prairie. And I, and I think it's striking that many of the, the male interests that Carol has throughout the story do escape Gopher's Prairie in one way or another. Like you think of like Bornstrom 
Miles Bornstrom, that's the Red Swede. He, after, his family has to die for it to happen, but he also sort of escapes Gopher's Prairie. And I think that's that's kind of a that's an important setup here because you know that's one way out, right? If you're everyone in your life dies, you're not attached to any one place anymore, and you can kind of escape it. But as long as you have like familial connections, as long as you're tied by the burden of family, it's harder to escape uh, a place. But Eric seems to really uh, um, provide that. Um, and then chapter 31 is when this relationship between her and Eric kind of reaches its its limit, I suppose. Um, Eric actually comes and visits her at night. He, he's kind of watching when she's alone and she, he goes into her house. And she's he actually tries to see her room. Remember, Carol and Will are living in separate rooms. So he tries to see her room. And he's basically trying to... to put himself in a situation where he could seduce her and it's not going to work, but you can tell that he's really trying to push this relationship forward. And Carol then has to like really aggressively like friend zone Eric and overtly rejects his love, which of course horrifies him, but it, it's what Carol feels she has to do at this point. But I mean, he's being also very, very aggressive and um, a little insulty, a little bit like an insult here in his, his attitude towards Carol. But she finally gets him out of the house. And he he goes out. But as he goes out, you know, it's Gopher's Prairie. Everyone's keeping an eye on each other. Everyone has eyes everywhere. So, you know, someone, the neighbor, sees Will or sees, sorry, Eric leaving. And so rumors start to spread about Carol and Eric since, since he was seen. And this kind of an inevitable thing that being seen that way would would spark these these rumors. So Vita comes later, I think it's the next day actually, or a couple days later, and she says, you know, Valberg, that's his name, right? Eric Valborg is is the source of these rumors and people are talking now about about Carol and the rumors are that Carol's having an affair, which she's not, of course, but it's of course significant that there, these rumors about Will don't exist. Will is not the subject of the gaze of the community in the same way that Carol is. Um, she's, you know, and there, that's why this book really is sort of a feminist book in many ways, because it does focus on how, you know, the experience of women is different than, than men, especially like ambitious, intelligent, self-assertive women, you know, in a place like Gopher's Prairie are not, able to, are not able to escape the gaze of the community in the way that maybe men are able to escape it. Um, but Vita, her friend, warns her about this. And and Vita also sort of says um, she really doesn't understand men, right? It's like, and that sort of helps her avoid trouble. Well, she's just, she's much more conventional than, than, than Carol. And she doesn't like romanticize men the way Carol does. Carol's constantly romanticizing the men around her, whether it's the way they dress or even like her husband romanticizing his his uh, medical ability, his ability as a as a physician, constantly, constantly kind of uh, uplifting these these men. She doesn't get them either, but Vida is more honest. So she's just like, I don't get men and I'm not really going to try and I'm going to be content with where I am. And and for Carol, that's not good enough. Um, but. But, you know. She talks about. 
she she actually admits to Carol at this point that like me and Will used to have this, like the relationship. She, she was he was courting me, and we were close. And he chose you instead. And this kind of revealed at this point that Will had actually had other opportunities with women before Carol, and one of them was Vita, who of course would spend another, you know, many years single, because of this this breakup between the two. And she she basically also scolds Carol, saying, "You really should appreciate Will a little bit more, because Will is not this bad guy that she make him out to be." Um, and she also attacks her on this idea of her as a reformer, because Carol wants to see herself as a reformer. And he says, "You know," or Vita says, "Sorry, Vita says, give me a break. Like, you know, reformers need to be morally upright." Now, this is really a just. A discussion on the progressive era when and i've said this before in the series that the progressive era was full of reform movements but these reform movements often were moralistic in one way or another i mean they were like uh anti-drinking is maybe the best example of it and and temperance is kind of in the backdrop of the story even though it doesn't really start until the end of world war ii right or the end of world war one but the moralism of reformism is there. And Vita's saying that that's, that's just a characteristic of a reformer. And you are risking that. So at the very least, if you want to reform Gopher's Prayer, you have to do so from a stand of moral um, propriety. And Carol eventually decides maybe she does need to change her attitude a little bit. And this is more of the fickleness of, of Carol Kennicott. Now, the next chapter, chapter 32, is really an important one because this is about, um, this is the barn dance thing. Um, so we have a, a few characters. I haven't said too much about them because they're kind of backdrop characters, but one is, is Mrs. Bogart. Mrs. Bogart's the neighbor. And she's actually the one, I think, who spied out that Will, or that, sorry, that Eric was visiting uh, Carol that day. And you have Fern, who, I guess I did talk a little bit about her. She's the she was the new teacher who came into town and she's carol witnesses a big fight like a verbal argument between uh mrs bogart and and fern uh and it turns out that uh that's about this barn dance that took place and carol was actually asked to attend the barn dance and she didn't or be part of the planning of it but she didn't want to do that um but Basically, what happened is that there was this barn dance that was held. It was supposed to be a community event. Fern was there, but so was Cy Bogart, who was the, the son of Mrs. Bogart. And during this barn dance, Fern is, is essentially like sexually assaulted by, by Cy Bogart. He gets drunk and uh, you know moves on her, and it's really, it's essentially a sexual assault, right? Um, tries to rape her. Let's just say it. Um, and and as a result of this, as a result of this, Mrs. Bogart wants to see Fern fired because she's basically blaming uh, Cy Bogart's actions on Fern for not being a good teacher, right? For being morally so. Back to this moralism of this whole epoch right it's like that uh, if a woman is sexually assaulted it must be the fault of the woman for how she behaves or whatever and that's what mrs bogart's arguing here and it's not it's not cy bogart's fault for for the the attempt the attempted assault and actually it was partially a, a, an actual assault right um even though he didn't rape her 
He tried to. And, but nevertheless, Mrs. Bogart wants to see Fern fired. And here's where the really odious nature of Gopher's Prairie comes out. When, um, when they bring forth the school board. And the school board basically addresses this issue. And essentially, Fern is forced to resign and leave town. And the only person who really stands up for her and sticks up for her is Carol Kennicott. And who's trying to make friends with her and, and understand her position and, and does, I think, understand her position. And she speaks for her. But the voices of moralism, the voices of, of conformity basically overtake her. And Fern is fi just finally forced to resign. And not only that, leave town. She, she's basically chased out of town. Uh, she's canceled, in a sense, for, for what someone else did. And it's, uh, in some ways, I think this really is the last straw for, for Carol Kennicott with uh, Gopher's Prairie. I think from this point on, she really doesn't want to have anything to do with this community anymore. So the, the next chapter is sort of a, a follow-up to the, or kind of conclusion to the, the Eric, Carol, and Will sort of love triangle that's going on. Unfulfilled love triangle, I suppose. Um, and they sit down and have a talk about this. And, and Will's not really accusing her of having an affair, just accusing her of how things, you know, talking to her about how things are seen. That's kind of a follow-up to the um, Vida's conversation with her, saying, you know, you really can't flirt too much publicly with this guy. You know, there's going to be a scandal. And, and Will's kind of warning her about that. And... And this is, I think this is after she, he like picks the two of them up as they're taking a walk out, out somewhere and, and he, he's driving by and he sees them together and he drives them back to town together. And after that, after she drops off uh, Eric, I think he's talking with her a little bit about this. And anyways, when, when Eric realizes that this relationship is not going to go anywhere, he decides he's going to go off to, to um, Minneapolis so it's another person who's able to kind of get out. That was, I think, the point of this. It's like, like uh, Miles, he's able to get out. Goes, I forget where he goes, but I, mean, I think he goes to Canada, right? And then um, Eric ends up going to Minneapolis to the city to get out. So these are all like clues to Carol. Like really, maybe the solution is just to leave, go for Prairie. And now, but before like the chapter ends, actually, Eric's father comes and scolds her and blames her. So this is like a mirror image in many ways. So Mrs. Bogart is blaming uh, Fern for Cy Bogart's behavior. And now we have Carol being blamed for, for Eric's behavior. Um, and, and he's as much in the wrong as more in the wrong than Carol is uh, giving a traditional morality and the moralism of the time. Um, and kind of as a as a denouement to this this crisis, uh, Will and Carol decide to take a trip to California, and that's what Chapter uh, Thirty Four is mostly about: is their trip to California. And I think they go to uh, to uh, they go to Mexico for a little while, and they visit other towns. and And what Carol realizes is that Gopher's Prairie has sort of expanded; it, it's sort of everywhere. That the basic setup of Gopher's Prairie, the same types of towns, exists throughout the American West in California uh, and in every town there's essentially a little gopher's prairie same type of people same type of behavior um, but um, so that's pretty demoralizing for her and then she eventually they eventually go back and I don't know why she it seems she's hoping for the town to have changed 
a little bit, but of course it doesn't. And the town is almost exactly the same. Nothing has changed. And, and you know how vacations are supposed to make you, you leave your life for a while and you come back kind of rejuvenated and able to face what that, what's back at home for you. And that's not what happens to, uh, to Carol. She just is more depressed in many ways about how the town is really what it's going to be. It's all, it, it is what it is and there's nothing that's going to change it. Um, and then we get to like the last theme of the book, I guess, in chapter 35, which is about boosterism. This is apparently something that was on his mind quite a lot. I, I There may have been hints in it in, in Aerosmith and others, but he spends quite a lot of time on boosterism. And it's a fun chapter, too, um, because boosterism, if you don't know, is something that was big in the later 19th and early 20th century in American history when you had, especially out in the West, when these new towns appeared in, in, you know, along the railroad tracks or, you know, wherever towns would appear out in the West where people would, would, would come together into a city. And then the hope was that they could become great cities, right? Like every city could be a Chicago or a Milwaukee or Minneapolis or something like every town had that potential because those towns started out small too. So, you need to boost them and promote them and make them into attractive towns that people want to move to, right? And this is, of course, something that people that live in towns want to see happen. It's it's kind of like an urban renewal kind of idea. Like, let's fix up the place. Let's bring in some things that will be attractive to encourage people to move and settle in this community. That will bring in tax money. It will bring in, bring in business. It will be good for the whole town. But... You know, the people behind this, when you get what you really got to look at, though, is the people behind the boosters of movements. And what the boosterists wanted was basically to speculate on real estate. So the, the, the economics behind it was people would speculate on the land and the homes, build it up, develop it, and then promote it. And so you would, you know, bring in a baseball team or bring in a symphony orchestra or bring in, you know, revitalize the downtown in some ways to make it attractive to people to move there. And then advertise that and bring them in. And then that will, of course, pay out for the speculators. So the real people who benefit from it are the speculators, but also the people in the town see that as a way to raise their property values and to increase the quality of life in their town. Um, but, you know, historically, if you look at it, like what's the difference between Gophers Prairie and Minneapolis, like geographically? Um, of course, I don't, I don't know enough about the history of that to say, but... You know, it's from the context, you could say, why couldn't our town be as good as that? And we're not that far away. It's, uh, you know, I don't know if they knew all the geographical theories of markets and all that. But, you know, the hope is if they could do it, why can't we? In a very simplistic way. But really the force behind it is the speculators. So that's what happens. So this guy comes in to, to boost Gophers Prairie. And the guy who does it is this guy named Mr. Blossor. So anyways, I'll, I'll read a paragraph on, on this. Um, it says, In the early summer began a campaign of boosting. The commercial club decided that Gophers Prairie was not only a wheat center, but also a perfect site for factories, summer cottages, and state institutions. In charge of the campaign was Mr. James Blosser, who'd recently come to town to speculate in land. Mr. Blosser was known as a hustler. He liked to be called Honest Jim. He was bulky, gauche, noisy, humorous man with narrow eyes, a rustic complexion, large red hands, and a brilliant clothes. 
He was attentive to all women. He was the first man in town who had not been sensitive enough to feel Carol's aloofness. He had put his arm around her shoulders while he consoled, or condescended to Kennecott. Nice little wifey, I say, Doc. And when, I, when she answered, not warmly, thank you very much for that improper he blew her on the neck and did not know that he had been insulted. So the 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 relationship with Carol is is interesting, I suppose. But the the bigger issue is essentially this guy is a con artist, and he's sort of known as a con artist, a con artist. But he's buying up this land in Gophers Prairie because it's cheap, hoping to make the town grow to profit from. Right, and he's probably done this to many other towns. When I was reading this chapter, I kept thinking of that Simpsons episode where the the guy comes in with the you know to buy, to to encourage the people of Springfield to buy them to build a monorail. If you remember that, and he gets everyone excited to build the monorail, and they build it. You know, he's like, "Oh, this is going to make your town a great urban. So it's going to make them. It's going to make it the next New York City." And the people go for it, and they plop down their money, willing. You know, and they want to build it, and they do build it. And not only is the monorail crap, but it doesn't change the town at all. The town's basically the same piece of crap it always was. And and then he just leaves town with all the money. Um, that's what Mr. Bluster essentially is. But the town does change. It does bring in like a baseball team. It brings in like lights on the streets. But uh, other than that, not much changes. And the boosterism campaign essentially fails. But all this brings up really the question of, of another, it's another aspect of reform, right? Boosterism is part of the, the overall reform movement. Like let's clean up our cities. Let's... Uh, make them nice, bring in capital, bring in business, and we'll, you know, and things will change overnight. Um, and of course, that doesn't really happen that often. And it's basically a, a it's a, basically a scheme. It's a, it's a, it's a Ponzi scheme of sorts. And it didn't just happen in Gophers Prairie. It happened in like every town uh, out west. And it's still going on to a degree under the names of gentrification or urban renewal or whatever. So then the next chapter, chapter, uh, I guess, 37, um, we get the big breakup between Will and Carol that's been coming. And it's interesting that the one thing that really breaks them up finally is Carol's unwillingness to support the boosterism. She kind of sees through it and she doesn't really intellectualize it or understand the forces behind it. She just thinks it's she doesn't take it that seriously. Just She doesn't support it that much. And Will scolds her. He says, like. You know, I know you hate uh, Gophers Prairie, but why can't you at least support this boosterism movement? Because it's so important to all of us. And he kind of finally loses his patience with her altogether. And she, meanwhile, has lost her patience with Gophers Prairie and tells Will, okay, fine, I'm just going to leave. And she doesn't say we're getting a divorce. They don't get divorced. She just says, I'm going to go to Washington. There's war work there. This is still during the war. It's like still 1918 or so. So she says, I'm going to go to Washington and, and work, do office work in the War Department and, and get away from things for a while. She doesn't go to New York City. She doesn't go to those big cities. She goes instead to, to Washington, where those opportunities are available for work for women. That was a big, it's all tied up to like the women's suffrage movement, too, is how women were really active in the war in various ways. And that helped in, you know, push along the arguments for women's suffrage which, of course, was passed after the war. Um, and that, that's kind of a, a subtext here, too, another reform movement that's in the backdrop of all this, especially in the later chapters, when she actually is exposed to this in her time in Washington. 
She, and, and there is, you know, I, I wish there was more of this in the book. We're really talking about the last, like, 20 pages or so of the book at this point. But I think it could have been, it's already a long book, so I'm not, like, saying he should have went on for another 100 pages about this. But, you know, I think it's significant that Carol's sort of w- woken up a little bit by Washington. Uh, on one hand, and now I'm getting into chapters 38 and, and 39 a little bit, but when she gets to Washington, she finds... Gopher's Prairie there too, especially in the workplace and in her circle, her, her very small peer circle there. She sees elements of Gopher's Prairie everywhere. And that's, it's kind of sad. It's like once she's seen it in Gopher's Prairie, she sees it everywhere else and she can't get away from it. But on the other hand, she does, her, her perspectives and her experiences are broadened living in Washington. So there is something there that's attractive to her. Not in the workplace, so the work is really banal. Um, because now the war ends, they still need these women to do the secretarial work for the War Department, and she's continuing to do that, even though the war's, um, um, the war's ended. But she's still feeling disconformity everywhere. And I think that's, that's where Sinclair Lewis kind of writes himself into this corner where she doesn't have solutions because if Gopher's Prairie is everywhere, if it's just America, if this is just what America is, as he says in the opening chapter, if this is the pinnacle of American civilization, really, where does America have to go except more of that? You know, you can add new technologies and that's going to get into Babbitt a little bit. Like in Babbitt, it's all about technology and consumerism much more directly. But if that's all there really is, what's... What's the way out? I don't think there is a solution, unfortunately. But anyways, uh, in chapter 38, uh, Will actually comes to visit Carol. And and they have, it's not the, it's a little bit cold. It's a lot of like, let's do the tourist attractions. Let's see this. Let's see Mount Vernon. Let's, let's go to all these different places and see the monuments. The same things you do if you go to Washington with your family but it doesn't seem to revitalize their relationship in any ways it seems they're both doing fine without the other um but will wants her back he doesn't want to lose her but at the same time he seems to be doing fine without her and and that's how the novel concludes eventually she does decide to return to gopher's prairie and and in a way sort of just deal with it because she can't get out there's no there's no escape and, and he, this complicates the idea that some of her male friends, like Miles and Eric, seem to escape, but do they? We don't follow them. We don't know what they experienced there. It's just from Carol's point of view that they got out and their lives are better. But when she goes out, you know, she, she hangs out with the suffragists. She has a bit of a different perspective on things. And it is better in some ways than Gopher's Prairie, but it's hard. It's the same. It's the same kind of stuff, especially in our workplace environment. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Like, you know, the workplace is is society, and it's often the worst parts of society. That's why I, one of the reasons people seem to hate work so much. But nonetheless, she returns home. She returns to Gopher's Prairie and, and continues her life there. Changed, I, yeah, obviously changed, but I don't know what there is for her. I mean... She lived her life as sort of the single mom in Washington, and that wasn't um, like it really wasn't enough for her, huh? I mean, and there's a, there's this other side to it too. Like she realizes that no one in Washington ultimately is going to care about her one way or another. The city is 
just uses her and kicks her out and, and maybe it provides some social uh, niceties and uh, gives her a little bit more of a bigger world to experience. But ultimately, she's expendable and she's not fully expendable in Gopher's Prairie. Um, where did she say it? there's there's a a line here after a week she decided that she was neither glad nor sorry to be back she entered each day with the matter-of-fact attitude with what had gone to her office with which she had gone to her office in washington it was her task there would be mechanical details and meaningless talk what of it the only problem was that she had approached with emotion proved insignificant she had on the train worked herself up to such devotion that she was willing to give up her own room and to share all of her life with Kennecott. But there's not much in Gopher's Prairie. There's talk about prohibition uh, and temperance and all that. That's the next big reform movement. That uh, What's her role going to be in it? I don't know. She's going to go with the flow and accept prohibition or, or, or what? But, you know, the final conversation is really about putting up storm windows in her, in her house. Back to, that was something that came up when she first moved there, the first winter there. So, just a cycle of life, middle class life in a small town. Nothing's really going to change. That's, I think, his thesis. And it's a pretty depressing thesis, to, to be sure. But I, I think there's a lot of truth to this in this novel about America. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, Carol's not a perfect person, but I think she's a great window into, into that. So is that enough? Is that enough to talk to say about Main Street? I guess so. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit cranky of a novel, I guess. That's my only complaint about it. I wish there were solutions, I, you know. And maybe there isn't, and then we got to face that as, as Americans. I don't know. It's too bad. Um, I think it gets worse than Babbitt. I've been reading Babbitt, which is the next book I'm going to look at. I'm going to do three episodes on Babbitt. But there, it's just like he. It's really all about like conformity and and consumerism and and all that. Like the ultimate conformist, right? In in Babbitt, the biggest joiner around. Um, but I'm looking forward to talking about that um, book. Um, and looking ahead in the podcast, I got two ways I can go uh, when I'm done with Babbitt. I can. Go back to the Civil War series, which which I will do shortly. But I'm also thinking of maybe doing a, the Studs Lonigan trilogy, which I've had on my shelf here for a while. Uh, I've been kind of looking at it and gazing at it. And I, I read about half of it before and never quite finished it. So, But I have that. So I think I might do that and then, then get to the Civil War series because I'm enjoying reading the novels. And I might stick on that. So stick with it. So anyways, that's uh, going to be it for now. That's my final thoughts about Main Street by, by Sinclair Lewis. Um, I thought I might have a little bit more to say, but I feel I'm just repeating myself. So anyways, that's it for, for now. Um, let me know what you think about uh, Main Street or Babbitt or anything by Sinclair Lewis. Um, I always appreciate that. And I'll, I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Swanee, how I love you, how I love you, my dear old Swanee. I'd give the world to be among the folks in D.I.X. I even know my mammy's waiting for me, praying for me down by the Swanee. The folks up north won't see me no more. 
when I get to that Swanee. 